Uh, So tonight we're reading uh, all of Matthew 25, so read with me. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there, are not, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in and with with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill, or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of God. Uh, please keep your Bibles open with you as um, you uh, as we go. Um, as Michael said, um, it's good to make sure that I'm reading from the text. Michael's known me for a few years, so he knows how dodgy I can be. Um, last words are important. I don't mean the last words someone says just before they die, although these can be important too. But the planned last words that people give. Say, um, the last speech of an exiting prime minister or the last bit of advice from a departing friend. If you only have one thing to say, one thing left to say, then what you say is going to be the most important thing. If you are leaving this church, you're going away, I'm going to another state, moving jobs, moving uh, countries, and you had one last thing to say to the people here, one thing to encourage them to keep doing, to keep faithful on, what would you say? What would be your one thing? In Matthew 25, we see Jesus' last public teaching before his crucifixion. In the next chapter, Matthew 26, we go into the Last Supper and then his arrest and crucifixion. And we basically don't hear anything of Jesus' teaching until we get to the end of the book and the Great Commission. And of course, Jesus knows this is about to happen. So he knows that this sermon that he's giving is the last block of public teaching, at least, that he's going to give. This is his opportunity to tell his disciples, the people who are following him, what it means to follow him. So we expect the last thing he says to be particularly significant. So what does he say? What is it he wants his followers to remember as he goes to the cross? What is it that gets written down at this point in the gospel so that we will remember it 2,000 years later as Jesus' last 
public sermon before his death. Well, in Matthew 25, he gives us three parables, three stories about the kingdom of God. Jesus is about to go away. And these three stories tell us a little bit about what it means to wait while we wait for his return. So let's have a look. So the first thing to say is this is a continuation of a sermon that he started in chapter 24. It's a two-chapter sermon. Chapter 24 starts off with Jesus walking along beside the temple, and he predicts that it's going to be destroyed. So naturally, his followers ask him, when's this going to happen? And he starts by telling the signs that would lead to the physical destruction of the temple. And that's something which did happen. About 40 years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But then Jesus segues into a sermon about a bigger catastrophe that is to come. A catastrophe so large that the destruction of the temple, its destruction of the whole city of Jerusalem, is merely a foretaste. Jesus starts talking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment when God judges between those who are shown to be his faithful people and those who are his enemies. And it will be a dark and a terrible day for those who are judged, but a glorious day for those who are found righteous. And he says, no one knows when this is going to happen. It's going to come suddenly, out of the blue, like a thief in the night. And in chapter 25, Jesus then tells these three parables about what the day of the Lord is going to be like. And the first is about ten virgins at a wedding who are waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. Five of them are foolish, five of them are wise. The wise ones bring spare lamp oil. The foolish ones don't. And they wait. And the bridegroom takes longer to arrive than they expected. So they fall asleep. Do you remember somebody else who falls asleep waiting for somebody in the Bible? Just in the next chapter, in Gethsemane, Jesus asks his disciples to wait with him while he prays. And then for one reason or another, they fall asleep like these women in the parable. Being awake, the idea of being awake is, is a major theme in the Bible. It's not just about being, having your eyes open and being standing upright. It's about being aware, being ready, being prepared for what's going to come. To be, to be asleep is to be oblivious, to be unprepared. So while these women sleep, the bridegroom arrives. Now all of them had fallen asleep. But some were more prepared than others. Those who had their spare oil could fill their lamps and join the celebration. And those who didn't, couldn't. Now, in the parable, the bridegroom is clearly Jesus. It's a fairly clear parable. He's returning in the day of judgment. And in verse 13, Jesus makes his point on the slide. Therefore, oh, no, slide one, sorry. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day 
or the hour. So this is the last thing that Jesus wants to tell his followers before his crucifixion. Keep watch. Stay awake. Be prepared. For the day of the Lord is coming. Now, if you are asked, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? What would you say? As we said at the start, if you're leaving this church and you've got one thing to say to them, one encouragement for them to stay ready, stay prepared until Jesus returns, what would it be? What would you say? Well, Jesus goes on in his second parable in verse 14. And this one is about a man going on a journey. He calls his servants and he entrusts his wealth to them. And he gives them different amounts of money and he tells them to look after it. Then, when he returns, one servant has been given five bags of gold. He invested it and got five more. Another servant, he had two bags of gold, he invested it and he got two more. And the master congratulates them and rewards them. The one who had one bag, however, buried it, did nothing with it, got no return, and the master is furious. He takes away his bag and he throws the servant out. And again, the main point of this parable is fairly clear. Um, we are the servants, and while we wait for our master to return, we have been given resources to invest. So invest wisely. But how do we do that? How do we do that? What has God given us to invest? Well, the simple answer is everything. God made the universe. He made you. He gave you your family, your education, your skills, the money you've earned, every second of every day, every breath you take is from God. And he has given it to us. I think this realization requires a change in mindset from us. Because I think that our default position as comfortable Australian Christians is that we have things. Time money, resources, we have things and we give some of them to God. This is our sacrifice. We give to God some of the stuff that we have. But Jesus is challenging us to think about things in a completely different way. Everything we have, God has created it belongs to God, and he has entrusted it to us to invest wisely. So Jesus doesn't call us to give a carefully measured 10% of what we have in service of God. He calls us to use everything that God has given us, everything he's entrusted to us, as investment in service to him. Whatever we have, whatever we can do, whoever we are has been given to us to invest. 
And notice one other thing about this parable. In verse 15, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And the reality is that different people are blessed in different ways. Some have lots of money. Some don't. Some have got large networks of friends and contacts, and others don't. Some have got skills and talents or free time or education that others do not have. Note that the judgment on the servants was not about what they started with. It was about what they did with what they had. Now, you may find that comforting. If you don't think you've got a lot to invest, then that could be a bit of a relief. That's you off the hook a little bit. But if we think about the fact that half the world's population lives on less than $5 a day, or that the majority of Australians don't even know a Christian who could tell them the gospel, maybe we have more to invest than we think. And maybe we're more responsible for our investment than we want to acknowledge. But that just raises the next question. What do we invest in? Do I work and earn money, and then I can give that money in ministry, to ministry? Or do I take time off work and use that time to teach Scripture? Or would it be better with that time, instead of doing Scripture, to go door knocking? Or or to do ministry in the church, to mentor a young Christian? The choices are limitless. How do I know that I am being wise with what God has given me? And what, what should we be doing as a church? What should we focus on? Should we focus on discipleship or evangelism? Should we be building our ministry here at home or planting churches in new suburbs? Should we be sending, ministry, should we be sending missionaries to Africa or should it be to Western Sydney? How do I know that I'm investing the resources that God has given me wisely? And again, it's interesting to note that the parable has no commentary on the investment strategies of the different servants. One servant returned five bags. One servant returned two. And they were both praised and rewarded the same. The only servant who was condemned was the one who did nothing, who just sat on his resources. Rather than trying to do something, anything, just give it to the bankers on interest. The cash rate just went up again. You'll get something out of it. Do something. So something is better than nothing. Trying is better than not trying. And if that was where Jesus had finished, that would be the conclusion. Go. Use the resources that God has given you. Invest them in his kingdom however you can as you wait for his return. But he goes on. In verse 31, and he tells a third parable. 
And again, this parable is set on Judgment Day. And the king sits down and he separates the people into two groups, like separate the sheep and the goats. And some will go away to eternal judgment and some to eternal life. But what are they judged on? The king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will ask, well, when did we do all this? And the king replies, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, at first glance, this may be saying, it may look like Jesus is saying that we are saved by what we do. That the way we treat poor people defines whether we are sheep or goats. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Because he makes it clear throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, and it's great to see that you're reading through it at the moment, that we are judged on whether we are followers of Jesus. Whether we believe and whether we trust in him. But what he also makes clear is that following him has consequences on how we act. And you may remember in another passage, in Matthew, Jesus says that you will know if a tree is good, if the fruit is good. And a major theme of the book of Matthew is it is not enough to just follow Jesus around as he walked through Israel. It is not enough to listen to his teaching or to call yourself a follower. You need to bear fruit. And in the same way, the king separates the sheep and the goats. And what was the evidence that separated them? What was the fruit that showed the good tree? The proof that they were being awake and prepared, that they were investing in God's given, they were investing God's given resources wisely. Well, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. God has a heart. For the poor and suffering. He always has. In the Old Testament, there were special laws that made sure that the most vulnerable people, the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner, were looked after and able to live and participate in society. God has a heart for the poor and the suffering. And he wants us to have a heart for them too. God has shown us infinite generosity. He's called us. He has saved us. He's given us everything that we have. And we are now part of his family, adopted children. And he wants us to share the family resemblance, mimicking our heavenly father in his love for the vulnerable. Now, it's not the only fruit That should be coming out of us. But if we are ungenerous when God has been so generous to us, it says something. 
So this is the final public teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples before going to the cross. The next slide. Be awake. Invest well by caring for his brothers and sisters. Now, it would be ridiculous to say that that's the only thing Jesus wants from us. He wants obedience in all parts of life. And he wants us to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. In fact, that's what he says in the very, very last teaching in the book of Matthew. After the resurrection, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And that is certainly our number one instruction. But isn't it interesting that in his last teaching before the crucifixion, this is how Jesus finishes. I wonder why. Why does he put emphasis on this here? Maybe he knew it would be one of the hardest things for us to do. Or maybe it's because it's actually really strategic. Some people are not really comfortable with the idea of using the language of strategic around our gospel ministry. But just remember that in the previous parable, Jesus has told us to invest wisely. So it's not wrong for us to look at what is the most strategic thing to do, what will have the most impact. Because we can fall into the trap of believing that there is a tension between caring for a person's physical needs and caring for their spiritual needs and preaching the gospel to them. And we try to figure out which one of these two we're going to emphasize. And there is a pretty strong thread in some churches that say, preach the gospel, do the best, do the best of the good, focus on that, and we'll let other people deal with the physical needs. It's a bit of a logical conclusion. You know, the gospel is eternal. The physical stuff, people are going to die, but... That's what's so fascinating about what Jesus is saying here. He tells us to be ready. He tells us to invest wisely. And then the next thing he says is talking about people's physical needs. And I think it's because there is no tension between the two. But in fact, we are truly being wise when we do both. And we do both together. And the history of the church bears this out. Some of the greatest moments of church growth has been through some of the worst situations in history when the church has stepped up and Christians have stepped up to serve. In plagues, wars and famines, in terrible persecution. Uh, and we've seen this plenty of times in Anglican Aid. The story of Madagascar gets repeated over and over when Christians step out in their own suffering, to care for the people down the road, the church thrives. But this isn't about Anglicanate. There are many, many, many ways of investing wisely. The question is, are you investing wisely? And remember the man with five bags and the man with two? Well, those who have been given much have much expected of them. And here in Sydney, we have been given so very much in both material and gospel resources. And I think God expects much of us. It's not just about money. 
and who you give to at tax time. Everything you have has been given to you by God. Your time, your money, your skills, your friendships, people you know, conversations you have, and he has entrusted them to you to invest wisely in his kingdom until he returns. And he will return. And it will be sudden, like a thief in the night. So be ready. Be awake. And because we can only do this in God's strength, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have blessed us with so much. Thank you that you have called us and saved us and made us your children. Thank you for this country and this city and this church that we're a part of, for the friends we have and the life you have blessed us with. Help us to stay awake as we await your return. Invest wisely in your kingdom and show your love to the ones who need it most. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to have the opportunity to uh, find out more from Mike afterwards and respond by doing all kinds of things. And I'm just talking until you guys move, so we'll keep going. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we get a chance to respond, first of all, by singing and uh, using our words, using... 